0: We are going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. Man, I've been getting tore up by this passage all week. And it's good to submit to God's word before I get up here and call you to submit to it. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, there are some black Bibles in the chairs around you. Uh, we're going to be on page 811. I've got my brother Chad Barlow come on up. He's going to read from God's word for us. So, uh, If you will, as we always do, please stand as we show reverence to God's word as we're reading from Matthew 6, starting in verse 1.
1: We will read verses. Hello, we'll read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll skip down to 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Skip down to verse 16.
0: to be with your people. Lord, we need this weekly rhythm in our lives to be reminded of the love that you have first shown us. Lord, I want to pray for a handful of specific things going on in our church body right now. Lord, I want to pray first and foremost for the Santini family. Thank you for the opportunity for them to go on a sabbatical, for Aaron to get rest after 20 years of a joyful grind of ministry. But Lord, as Stephen's uh, issues have flared up in his intestines again, Lord, we ask for you to comfort them. Lord, we ask for you, this 17-year-old little guy who has the world set before him, Lord, I ask just that you would heal him. Lord, I ask that you would, most importantly, comfort his heart with the truths of who you are. And Lord, I prayed that you would use this for the fame of your name and draw people to yourself. So Lord, we ask just as they are walking through this trial in this unique season, Lord, I ask just that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, Lord. And God, I also want to pray for Angela Fiedler's mom, Cindy. Lord, thanks for the opportunity for her to be with us here this morning. Lord, as she has been battling glioplastoma, Lord, a, a brain tumor, Lord, we ask that you would do the supernatural, that you would heal her. Holy Spirit, you can do amazing and wonderful things, and you often do. But Lord, it's, it's beyond what we can ask or imagine. And Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Lord, we ask just that your will will be done in Cindy's life. Lord, we pray that you would give her many more days. As you know all of our days, before one of them has come to be, Lord, you know her days. And God, we ask that you would not only extend her life, but she would love you, worship you more, that her husband Mark would love you and worship you more, and that you would draw people to yourself through this cancer. And Lord, finally, I want to pray for our entire church. I pray that you would allow us to be an effective community that is on mission. Lord, you have given us the words of life, because Jesus, you are life. And God, I pray that our community, that our life groups specifically, would bear witness to the God of grace that has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. So would you allow us to be effective in this season? We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Okay, so when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was The Mask. Who here has seen The Mask with Jim Carrey? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Smoking! Yeah. Ask me uh, later. I'll do that again for you. Um, And so the the premise of this movie, the storyline, is you've got this mediocre guy, Stanley Ipkiss. And he's got a mediocre job, he's got a mediocre car, he's got a mediocre love life, and really the only thing about him that is not mediocre is his dog. If you guys remember Milo, that dog was awesome in the movie. He was the star of the show. Anyways, so Stanley, he finds this mask that has magical powers and then he puts it on and he's transformed into this different person and he's no longer mediocre But he's crazy. (laughs) And the things that he does, pretty out of the norm for Stanley Ipkiss to do. But then he sees this gal who's the love interest in the story. Cameron Diaz plays the part. And, you know, his heart is pumping out of his chest, if you remember the scene. And he just loves her. Well, he woos her when he's wearing the mask but when the mask comes off, he's actually pretty nervous. He's actually pretty afraid that she's not going to like him for who he truly is. Well, as all good love stories go, you know, the mask comes off, she sees him and she likes him and happily ever after, you know, it's, it's a great movie. Go see it. 1994, classic. Um, so the reason why I share that with you today is because I think Jesus has something to say for us. I think Jesus has something to say for us, that oftentimes we wear masks because we want people to perceive us in a certain way. Jesus says in our passage in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men that you may be seen by them, that you may be seen by them. He's giving us a stark warning. And as maybe you've been tracking with us through the Sermon on the Mount, we just finished this great section in chapter 5 talking about what righteousness is, true, wholehearted righteousness. It's this idea of being perfect, but not perfect like Rich explained last week of getting all the answers on your test score correctly or a shutout in a hockey game, got to get the hockey reference in. No, to be perfect means to be whole. It means to be complete. And Jesus said that our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is to be perfect. So, we come to chapter 6. Oh, it's so good. And Jesus picks up again on this theme of not only righteousness but now he shifts our focus to this idea of our Heavenly Father and that our Heavenly Father wants us to be true before Him. Our Heavenly Father wants us to have whole, perfect, complete hearts. So, the warning here, it's not so much about you doing your righteous acts, but it's you're doing righteous acts in order to be seen by other people. Jesus wants us to do righteous acts, and we are to do that for people, but we are not to do it to get their praise. So this morning, what we're going to talk about is simply what it means to live for an audience of one, an audience of one. And My proposition that we're going to unpack is wholehearted righteousness flows from living for an audience of one. Wholehearted righteousness flows from living for an audience of one. So I've got three points for us this morning. Got a little alliteration for you guys. If you're a note taker, you can write these down or they're in your bulletin. But those three points are righteous acts. We're going to unpack the praying, giving, fasting. Main point number two is risks. Jesus is warning us of risks that we're taking if we're wearing this mask. And finally, we're going to answer the question of reward. What is the reward that we're promised? Righteous acts, risks, reward. And many of you probably noticed that we skipped over a large chunk in the passage here today. Uh, normally, we go line by line, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, but we didn't like this section of scripture, so we just said, "Nah, we're not going to preach it. No, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, that section is historically known as the Lord's Prayer. And we could preach an entire sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. But we as pastors decided to take an entire Sunday out of our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And next week, our brother Trey King is going to bring God's Word to God's people as we look at the Lord's Prayer. And we look forward to that. So, stay tuned there. All right, let's jump in. Point number one, righteous acts. And again, we're going to walk through each of these, giving, praying, fasting, in this one main point. So, as Chad read, you might have picked up on this, starting in verse 2, as well as verse 5 and verse 16, there is a distinct pattern in what Jesus is saying here. There is distinct repetition here, and that's intentional. He's moving from the negative, what we should not do, to the positive, What he wants us to do. And so, notice there in verse 2, he says, Thus, if you give to the needy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, when you give for each of these. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. And there's this assumption that Jesus' disciples, his followers, do these things. Now, each one of these things was very common for a first-century Jew. That's Jesus' main audience here in the Sermon on the Mount. So what he is unpacking here, incredibly familiar. They knew what he was talking about. So the first one, giving to the needy. Giving to the needy. So back then, they didn't have government assistance programs. They didn't have food stamps. They didn't have Medicaid. And the community took care of one another. So he says... When you give to the poor, when you give to the needy, some of your older translations might say alms giving, and it's this idea of you're giving food or money to people who have less than you. He says, Sound no trumpet. And what he's getting at here is not to be a spiritual show off. Oftentimes, the hypocrites, they would go and they'd toot their own horn. And it wasn't this literal trumpet, but they would make a big show of giving to the people who were less fortunate. And what happens when someone does that, they're not actually helping the person, they're actually using the person. They're actually using the person for their own gain. And Jesus says, if you do that, that's your reward. You've got it. That's the risk. But he wants us to give in a particular way, with a particular posture. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Is that possible? Can, can you really do that? Well, back then, your right hand was seen as your active hand. And while you literally can't divorce the two, Obviously, you know what you're doing. Jesus wants us to give in secret, not to build a reputation for ourselves, but you give out of the abundance of your heart. You give out of a desire to want to help others because you realize that you yourself have been helped. So when he says, Sound no trumpet, I don't think it's a literal trumpet. I think he's using hyperbole. Something similar would be like if somebody came in with their big, huge check, like, oh, I'm just going to leave this right here, right in the stage. And the biggest part of that check is where you sign your name. He's using hyperbole here. He wants our giving to be an act of worship. So whether you're helping someone out who is less fortunate, or whether you're giving to the church and how we help people out, he wants it to be between you and God. That's why we have offering boxes in the back of our sanctuary. We don't pass the plate here. Maybe someday we will. I don't know. But the principle is that God wants your giving to be in secret. So wholehearted righteousness flows from an abundance of your love for God. Not to build some sort of spiritual credit with Him. No, that's moralism, that's legalism. You can't say, God, I've given you so much. Now you need to give me something back. No. When we give, it's out of an understanding that everything that we have has been given to us by our Father in heaven. And we respond in an act of worship. So, that principle applies for when you're giving to someone in need, whether it's inside the church, outside the church, in your life group, somebody you meet on the street, or when you're giving to the local church as well. Okay, that's giving. Let's keep going. Prayer. Again, this righteous act, prayer, very common for a first century Jew. In the book of Daniel, the prophet, he would open his windows towards Jerusalem and pray three times a day. Many Jews would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. First century Jews were very disciplined in their prayer life. But Jesus is going deeper here. He's wanting our most thoughtful and our most passionate prayers to be flown out of our heart. And so he's making this contrast between public life, public prayer life, and private, private prayer life. Notice in verse 5 he says, "Uh, Don't be like the hypocrites who pick these strategic locations, these street corners, these synagogues, so that people will hear their prayers, so that they will be seen. But Jesus isn't so much worried about the location of where we pray, but he's more concerned about the orientation. He's more concerned about the orientation of our heart. And so, if we are tempted to pray in such a manner to be seen by others, that's the remedy that Jesus prescribes here. He says, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So, if you have the temptation to impress others with your prayer life, that's when you should go to your prayer closet. In verse 7, he switches the prayer. He switches comparing these hypocrites to these Gentiles. He says that the hypocrites, they heap up these empty phrases, these chants to appease their many gods. And maybe one of those gods will not just hear them, but grant their request. No, he says, Jesus says that our Father in heaven knows a word before it's even on our tongue. He knows what we need before we even ask him. And so Jesus wants us to have this posture of humility, this posture of, rep- of dependence. And so next week, we're going to see that in the Lord's Prayer. It's amazing. It's pretty simple, the structure of the Lord's Prayer and how the Lord instructs us in how to pray to our Father in Heaven. But just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's stupid. (laughs) It's actually pretty stunning. So we look forward to that. So whether you pray in public or you pray in private, the orientation of your heart is what Jesus wants. Please know he's not saying just pray in private. I just prayed in front of all of us for the church when it's gathered together. We have instructions in the New Testament to do that. And you all have instructions as well to pray for one another. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So public versus private life, the principle here is what is the orientation of your heart? Is there a desire to impress with your prayer life? All right, last one, fasting. Fasting. Fasting is a discipline that maybe you aren't familiar with, uh, but maybe some of you are very familiar with it. Uh, And it's this idea of you're denying yourself something, typically food, um, but you're denying yourself something that you think you need so that you are dependent on the one that you really need. Again, first century Jew, very familiar. There's calls in the law as well as all throughout the Old Testament to fast. Whether it's a time of mourning, whether it's before a feast, whether then they were rebuilding the temple wall around Jerusalem, there were often calls to fast. But Jesus here, he's not so focused on what we're fasting from, but he's more focused on how we are presenting ourselves when we fast. See, he says, don't look gloomy as the hypocrites do. Don't wear your heart on your sleeve when you fast. No, he says, anoint your beard with oil, if you've got a beard. Take a shower, wash your face, and present yourself to God. And Jesus does this because he realizes that the external flows from the internal. And if we are humble, if we are dependent... If we are reliant on God, that should overflow into our external, not just appearance, but also actions. So again, take a shower, put on a little bit of deodorant, but most importantly, be dependent. So Jesus, he fasted for 40 days. And when the tempter came to him, do you remember what he did? He quoted scripture. He said, man does not live on bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It wasn't so much on what he was fasting from, but it was who he was dependent on. And that's what we do when we fast. So when you fast, when you practice this discipline of self-denial, whether it's from food or Facebook, your smartphone or sweets or whatever it is, The principle here is to rely on him and to enjoy him from wholehearted obedience. And that's true for all these righteous acts, giving, praying, and fasting. We are to do it out of a whole heart for the audience of one. And if we don't, then we risk the dangerous consequences We risk the dangerous consequences. And that leads me to our second main point, risks. And there's really a couple risks here that I want to unpack. The first one is hypocrite. The second one is seeking the praise of men. So the risk of being a hypocrite. When Jesus is explaining these things, it's obvious that he had the Pharisees in mind. Because they were doing all these things for the show of others. But oftentimes, we think that these Pharisees are these bad guys. And there are some things that they do that are bad, like killing Jesus. (laughs) But we're more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. You see, the Pharisees, they, they were the ones who loved their Bibles. They were the ones who cared about holiness. They were the ones who wanted to honor God with their lips. But their hearts were far from Him. A Pharisee... They would pray for three hours a day. They would fast twice a week, and they would often give to the poor. But Jesus is calling his disciples to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, to exceed it, and to not be like the hypocrites. Does anyone know what hypocrite is in Greek? Write this one down. It's hypocrite. Yes, it's worth the price of admission. But hypocrite in Jesus' day is very different from how we might use the word hypocrite. You see, when we use hypocrite, it's often this principle of do as I say, not as I do. For example, just this week, my son Solomon, he's sitting in the backseat of our car, rolls down the window and sticks his hand out. I'm like, son, put your hand back in the window or put your hand back into the car don't stick your hand out the window. Well, what does dad do? Oh, he rests his arm right there on the windowsill. He's, he's got his arm out there. And Solomon's like, well, daddy, why can you do it? Do as I say, son, not as I do. It's being a hypocrite, right? Well, in Jesus' day, being a hypocrite was different. It had this connotation of the theater. It had this connotation of a performer, who was on stage, who looked one way, did certain things, but then off stage was very different. And Jesus is getting at these spiritual show-offs, these spiritual show-offs who put on this front, who were performing for an audience in their giving, in their praying, in their fasting. And Jesus is aiming at the whole person, the perfect person. He's aiming at the person not just on the stage when you do those things, but the person off the stage as well. We run the risk of being a hypocrite day in and day out. When we're on stage, when we put on these masks to be seen by others. One of my favorite pastors and theologians, Sinclair Ferguson, he said it like this. He described the hypocrites as their outward actions suggest their heart is focused on the Lord, but their inward desires are for the recognition and praise of men. Externally, it looked good. Internally, it was not good. Because the hypocrites wanted the praise of men. And that's the second risk. And that's really the most dangerous risk the praise of men. So, when the hypocrites would do their righteous acts, others would see and they'd be amazed. Wow, look how long he's praying for. (laughs) And Jesus says, that's your reward. That's all you get. And reward here has this idea of being paid in full. Like a laborer who's due his wages, he gets at the end of the day his reward. But the reality is, guys, is we do this all the time. We do these things. We have these outward righteous acts, but we do them with the wrong inward motives. And we have these inward desires, namely to be seen by other people. And Jesus said that when they see you, that's your reward. That's all you're going to get. And that reward, it's a pretty crummy reward. It's fickle, it's fleeting, and it fades. And actually, when you have that type of reward in your life, it often is like a drug. And, and the high that you get of the praise from man feels good. And you want more of it. And so you keep seeking after it. I follow this all the time. I love the praise of men. Hey, Daniel, way to go. That was a great sermon. Hey, Daniel, you, you're a good dad. That was amazing. I can't believe you did that. I don't know where we'd be without you. Guys, it's phrases like this that breed codependency. The Bible calls this the fear of man. And we want what they have to say more than we, we want what God has to say. And it's a grave danger. The reality is, is that we need people. And I would say, like, we also need encouragement. That's why the New Testament calls believers to encourage one another. But what we don't need is to have a big view of people and a small view of God. And actually, the remedy for the fear of man is the opposite. You need a bigger view of God and a smaller view of people. And so, when we have these inward desires for people to praise us, when we have these inward desires to have people see us and respond accordingly, we're actually controlled by them. And we have this performance driven mindset. And while people and affirmation and encouragement are good things. They make terrible gods. And when you serve these gods, you're controlled by them and you just want more. But in all reality, when you're controlled by these gods, actually what has happened is is you have usurped our Father who is in heaven and you've put yourself in his place. And that's the greatest risk that we all fall to. We want the praise, we want the recognition, we want the affirmation. And it goes all the way back to the garden, right? With Adam and Eve. When Eve took of the fruit because she wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. But Jesus here, he's warning us. He's warning us of these risks of being a hypocrite, of putting ourselves in the place of God. And he's exposing our broken hearts, and he's offering us the path to true satisfaction. And that path comes from living for an audience of one. But it's not this one. It's our Father who's in heaven. It's that one, the one And that leads us to our last main point this morning, reward. Reward. So what is the reward that Jesus is referring to? Well, again, reward has this idea of being paid in full. Something that you get at the end of something. And we have to be careful here. Because when you think through rewards, it's very easy for our legalistic mindset, for our performance-driven mindset to go to this idea of okay, I'm just going to get merit for being a moralistic person. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. No, Jesus has already hit on this idea in the Beatitudes of reward. He said, wholehearted righteousness, those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the reward. Those who mourn shall be comforted. Those who are merciful shall receive mercy. Those who are pure in heart shall see God. And ladies and gentlemen, that is our reward. We shall see God. He is our reward. Our Father who's in heaven. The reward of God is that we get to live with Him and be with Him for all of eternity. When at the end of our life, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. And this is the beauty of understanding that we have a Father in heaven. Not this deity that we're trying to please with our religious works or piety. No, we have a Father in heaven who cares for us. Who loves us. Who wants to embrace us. And this is the beauty of of what it means to be a son or daughter of this Father who's in heaven. God doesn't just want to save us from his wrath. We need to be saved because we are sinners who have rebelled against him. We've put ourselves in the place. No, God is much more than that. He wants to know us. He wants wants us to draw near to him. And he wants to be with us. That's the idea of a relationship. Jesus, when speaking to the hypocrites, I think explained this beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you are probably familiar with it, but if not, I actually like to call it the parable of the prodigal sons because both sons are lost. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a great book that we actually have out in the foyer there called The Prodigal God, and it's unpacking this parable. So in the parable, you have the father and you have two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother. And the young, younger brother comes to his dad, comes to his father and says, I'm done with you, pops. You're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance and I'm out of here. And the father grants the request. And the son goes off and he squanders it. He squanders all this inheritance money in reckless living, in reckless living. And once he's out of money, he's, he realizes, hey, I got to get a job. <laughs> so he starts feeding Pigs. What a glorious job that is. And as he's feeding these pigs, he's hungry. And he sees what the pigs are eating and he says, I want that. But then he finally comes to his senses and he realizes that if he returned to his father, he could eat better. He could be like a hired servant and be treated way better than he is as a pig slop feeder. So he's off. And he heads home. And the father, it's amazing. He's longing for his son's return, and he sees him far off, and he runs to him. He runs after him, which first-century Jewish men, they don't run. If you remember their clothes, it went all the way down to their ankles. So he had to gird up his loins and run like a first-century Jew. (laughs) They don't do that. But this father doesn't care about cultural norms. And when he gets to his son, he embraces him, he kisses him, He shows him public affection. And the son, he begins his spiel. He says, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be treated as one of your sons. What does the father do? He says, that's right, you're not. You're going to work as my slave. Does he say that? You're going to work as my slave, and you're going to, Pay me back every penny that you spent with interest. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. But we often have that view of God. We often have that view that God is angry with us. And once we come back to him, he's going to scold us. He's going to discipline us. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints of our heavenly father. No, he embraces him, he loves him, he kisses him, he calls his servant over. He says, put the robe on my son, put a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf, let's party. My son, who was dead, is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. It's time to celebrate. It's a great story, right? It's amazing, but that's not the whole story. That's where people like to often end. But actually, the primary audience that Jesus is telling this to is the Pharisees, the the hypocrites. And he relates them to the older brother. So the older brother comes in on the scene. He hears all this music, this dancing. And he says to one of the servants, he says, hey, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother, he's come home. And your father is ecstatic that he's here, that we're celebrating. And the older brother is infuriated. (laughs) He will not go into the feast. And so the father comes out to him. The father comes out. And the older brother, he says, look, all these years I have served you. Notice he doesn't address him as father or dad. He just says, look here, old man. I've obeyed you in everything you've wanted me to. And now this son of yours, not my brother, now this son of yours comes home from squandering our property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him? Like, are you kidding me, dad? And that's pretty much the end of the story. (laughs) Jesus leaves, leaves us with a cliffhanger. And there's purpose to that. Because Jesus is explaining that both of these sons were lost. Both the younger brother and the older brother were just as lost as one another. And what they needed was the initiating grace of God. Notice that the Father went out to both of them in both situations. And the Father comes to us. Whether we have the wrong motives with our righteous deeds, or we're off astray as the prodigal, the Father comes near to us. So, maybe you haven't come to that point in your life where you see your need to return to the Father. Maybe you haven't come to the point where you know that He's waiting for you. But please know, He is waiting for you to return. And He has initiated grace towards us by sending the true and better older brother, Jesus. The true and better older brother to come not only live for us, but die in our place. And he wants to celebrate. And he wants to celebrate with us. And it's when we understand that our Father in heaven is like this, and that we see that not only we want to be with him, but he wants to be with us. It's then that he is our reward. He wants us. And so we make it our aim to serve an audience of one. So here's the overarching application. I could list off a number of different things that I could call you guys to, whether it's your Sunday gathering attendance or your life group involvement or the way that you serve or give or pray or fast, or maybe it's something that you do outside the church, how you care for outsiders or evangelize. I could call you to a number of different things here. But the the question is, in whatever you're doing, are you doing it for an audience of one? Maybe it's something that you're not doing. Maybe there's an opportunity that's arisen, but you've rejected it because you're afraid of how people are going to respond. That is living for an audience of one, but that's not how Jesus wants us to live. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He is our delight. He is our reward. And we do it for Him. So, my buddy Tyler preached a great sermon on Matthew 5.14 a few weeks ago. Matthew 5.14 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And in light of that, with our passage today of letting your light shine or going in secret. Here's the general heart check. Here's the general principle that I discovered this week in my studies. When you are tempted to shine, that's when you should go hide. And when you're tempted to hide, that's when you should shine. Here's what I mean. When you are tempted to shine, when you are tempted to be this spiritual show-off like the hypocrites, When you are tempted to build your own reputation, that's when you need to pull back. That's when you need to hide and go do whatever you're about to do between you and your Father who is in heaven. But when you're tempted to hide, when you're fearful of how people are going to respond, that's when all the more you should remember that you are a son or a daughter of your Father in heaven, and He has made you to shine For the sake of his name, not your own. We live for the fame of God's name, not our own. Just this week, I mean, I'm preaching a sermon on righteousness before others. It's like, I don't want to preach this. It's like, ah, this isn't going to be very good. Ah, people aren't going to like me. And just go through the emotional roller coaster of sermon prep. And I was tempted to hide. And God just laid it on my heart, Daniel. You are to shine for me, not for you. Similarly, I had some friends over, and we were going to pray, but I was like, "Ah, I don't think so. It it might be weird for them. Like, they're not very religious. No, all the more, you got to shine. And we prayed, and it was great. For the glory of our Father in heaven. So that's it. When we live for an audience of one, that's where wholehearted righteousness is found. In our righteous deeds, in our righteous acts, as we evaluate the risks, and as we live for the one reward, who is our Father, that's in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are our reward. We're thankful that you not only left us as a prodigal who's gone astray to live for ourselves, but you came near to us. And Lord, as we come to the table here now, Lord, I pray just that you would do a mighty work to remind us that we would reflect of the grace that has been shown to us. And Lord, I pray as uh, these times will come up in our lives time and time again that we want to shine, that we want to build a reputation for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that you have not only called us to this, but you've called us to live for your glory, not our own. So thanks for the time here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.